From oversized steaks and fancy restaurants to fast food burgers and everything in between, beef and the consumption of it is as American as apple pie. This didn't happen by accident. I'm Tiffany, and this month on Real Food Reads, we are diving to the story of beef and how it shaped America with Joshua Specht in his latest book, Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. So at Real Food Media, we often talk about the power of narratives, and we see this throughout Red Meat Republic. The demand for beef and the supply for it was catalyzed by certain narratives that rationalized and validated the genocide of Native people and the theft of their land. It also informed how laborers and slaughterhouses were treated, and ultimately shaped American demand for beef. So in your book, you say that the story of beef is integral to the story of America and its forceful expansion west. So how did beef drive this violent expansion? And what stories and myths rationalize and even romanticize this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Beef is interesting because of the place of ranching in the story of the American West. And I think cattle ranching was crucial in changing the area known as the Great Plains from a place that white Americans wanted to cross over to get to a place like California or Oregon into a place they wanted to put to use or occupy. And in the book, I talk about how cattle ranching is both a tool of the dispossession of indigenous lands and also a justification for. So cattle occupy people's lands. They come into conflict with people. And they also, ranching cattle is seen as a kind of higher, more legitimate use of land than hunting bison on it. And so cattle become the flashpoint for all these kind of conflicts with American Indians throughout the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking about like Western movies and films and stories that we heard that kind of really romanticize this. Can you speak a little bit to that and how that was pivotal? Yeah. So ranching is part of the material process of American expansion. But after that initial process, or even starting at the time, people start to tell stories about that process that kind of justify it. So people start to tell stories um, of American Indian poverty and inability to support themselves as a way of justifying taking their land, when the reality was that both ranchers and the U.S. military had targeted, for many American Indians, their means of subsistence, particularly for people like, say, the Kiowa. The next part is a set of myth-making about what the kind of Wild West image we have in our head of you know, individualism, of gunfights, of people on their own. And that's very different than the story of the American West I tell in the book. The story of the American West I tell in the book is a story of big business. It's a story of vast corporate ranches that had 100,000 cattle. It's a story of railroad politics. And all of that gets kind of swept under the rug to pretend like the kind of business aspect wasn't there and tell this story that kind of connects ranching to an American identity that's more authentic than this kind of big business narrative that people are more uneasy with when they think about their food. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you were saying earlier about how there is a story about the poor Native folks who can't really fend for themselves or provide for themselves, I think what's obviously crucial to beef cattle industry is the dispossession of land, but something that we don't really, or that I didn't really know, was how important reservations were and moving folks into reservations were to the industry. So can you tell us a little bit more about what role reservations played? So after the initial process of dispossessing the vast majority of American Indian land, and and over time, reservations themselves are also shrunk, this creates immense amounts of poverty, because often the land set aside for these small reservations is some of the worst land in the area. 
it's always kind of being encroached upon by farmers and perhaps illegal ranchers. And so people who live in those places are often unable to support themselves. They also can't do things like engage in the bison hunt that they had relied on in the past. And so they need a way to be fed, essentially. And sometimes in an agreement to go onto a reservation, they negotiate agreements with the federal government to provide them rations or food. So sometimes it's actually negotiated. And what happens is ranchers get all these really lucrative contracts to supply beef to American Indian reservations. You get this at Pine Ridge. You get this in what's known then as Indian Territory and becomes Oklahoma. And so ranchers get all this good deal selling this cattle, often at inflated prices. And then even though for many of these people they've negotiated these kinds of rations or transfers to the federal government, that's viewed as a kind of government handout, almost like what we would today think of as welfare. And so all of a sudden they start to develop these arguments Kind of what we see in debates today when we talk about people on government assistance, they say, oh, these people are lazy, they can't support themselves, when the reality is their means of support were forcibly taken away, and then they're being given this handout, which then gives good deals to the cattle ranchers who are now occupying their land, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And this feels like very similar to some U.S. foreign aid policy. And how we go into other countries, say that they need to farm in a certain way, and then we provide them with our own, like, grains. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's exactly like that. I think, in a way, it's, it's almost more galling because it's, it's both providing them with that and also those cattle were raised on land that these people used to occupy. So there's, like, kind of an extra layer, too. Also, while reading this and thinking about this, I was really struck by the parallels of what we're seeing right now in the Amazon. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the parallels between beef in America and then beef in agribusiness in the Amazon? For sure. So I see lots of parallels today. So one thing I argue in the book is that this kind of model of industrial beef, this system I call in the book the cattle beef complex, is founded on a few different things. Um, One is the dominance of the food processors, kind of the middlemen in the story. And the other is the lowest price through any means, justifying any amount of violence or negative effects by saying at least it lowers prices to consumers. And that becomes the American model for food production. So it doesn't matter that these people have had their land taken. It doesn't matter that workers are being exploited because we can provide cheap beef to the American people. And the meatpackers make this argument. In the 20th and 21st centuries, I see that American model of agriculture being exported worldwide. And in Brazil, they actually kind of perfect this model in many ways. You get these businesses that make low-cost beef, their kind of core principle, and they basically get contractors or the ranchers that supply them to kind of do their dirty work. Right? So beef processors in Brazil have deals with rural slaughterhouses throughout the Amazon, and it's not totally clear. I mean, they claim they watch their supply chain, but it's not totally clear where that beef is coming from. So the people on the ground, the ranchers, are doing most of the violence of dispossession and land destruction. Once it gets into the slaughterhouses in Brazil, it gets kind of uh, laundered and becomes a legitimate part of the supply chain. And that's exactly like in the 19th century U.S. where the Chicago meatpackers bought from the ranchers and kind of transformed that product into this commodity that is beef. Hmm. 
So I feel like I hear oftentimes when people don't like a way that something is produced, the common like refrain is to just like not buy this thing anymore. So if people who are against the destruction of the Amazon or not eating beef or don't like factory farming or just like not eating beef, when the problem is structural, a response that is like confined to an individual choice doesn't really move the needle much. And you talk about the limits of consumerism politics in your book. Can you talk about these limits and how they show up in this story of beef and America? Yeah. I mean, this is something I, I don't know if I have a total answer to. I mean, I, I think about this a lot, too, and I know a lot of people are. Obviously, our choices matter to some extent, particularly for our lives. But one of the things I try to show in the book, in the final chapter, where I talk about people eating beef, is that our food preferences aren't something we kind of freely choose at any given moment, right? They're, in some sense, historical. They're cultural. They're, they're tied to questions of class. So who we are is bound up in food, and we can't just overnight switch. And in some sense, people who think they can switch overnight, that's a certain kind of privilege or power to be able to change easily. And so AI suggests compassion when we think about people's food choices, and we also need to think about the long term, which is that when we have conversations about choice, it should be towards thinking about how to make these kinds of structural changes. The one I think about a lot is in both the U.S. and, say, Brazil, we have a system, like I said, founded on low costs at any price. And when you get the cost that low, it means any kind of improvement to the system is going to make food more expensive. And so what that gets me thinking about is any attempt to reform some of these problematic aspects of our food system is going to have to have a class element. We're going to have to think about how to make better food more affordable. We can't just make better food without getting that kind of economic justice element in there. And that's one of the big insights I think I took from writing the book. Mm -hmm. So then speaking to um, the cost of beef, and just agribusiness in general, right? As you mentioned, it's all about making it very cheap or maximizing profit. And you explain in, in agribusiness and with the cattle beef industry, the unpredictability of nature is a vital source of profit. And that kind of stood out to me because I often think about agribusiness trying to control nature, exert control over nature and natural processes, but the unpredictability of it actually becomes a vital source of profit. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, and I think this actually ties in very nicely. I wish I had thought of this a minute ago when I was talking about Brazil, um, <laughs> because that, that is exactly what I would see going on there. So what I talk about in the early part of my story is the range cattle business. This is in the 1870s into the 1880s, when people would basically kind of release cattle, not look at them too closely, and rely on animals to kind of do their own thing and reproduce. And that became your source of profits. You would collect them again a season and sell them. And sometimes, you know, it would save you a lot of money. Sometimes it would be a blizzard and you would lose money. But overall, you would be profiting from that natural process. Now, the story of agribusiness across the 20th century has been an attempt to rationalize this process. But you can't rationalize it too much because if you kind of control nature too tightly, it's going to become prohibitively expensive. So there's a push and pull between your demand for reliability as an investor or a capitalist and this unpredictability of nature. And particularly in the early phases of ranching or farming in a location, that unpredictability is really key. And so that's what we're seeing in, in Brazil today when areas are deforested. It's, it's a way of quickly turning new land into profit by intensively either raising soy for feeding cattle or putting cattle on that land. And over time, I think the balance, that unpredictability will start to wane. But at the beginning, particularly, that's how you can make a lot of money. 
And that also puts a premium, by the way, on clearing this land because it allows you to make those first-time profits in more and more places, and this is how we're getting to this deforestation process. And also when you're talking about this unpredictability of nature and kind of displacing the risk, right, from like the firm owners onto ranchers and farmers and everyone in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, so displacing of risk is, is also key. So if you think about the people who make all the money in the, in the kind of global meat supply chain today and in, at the end of my story, it's the processors. They buy from ranchers. And what that means is to some extent in a place like Brazil, ranchers might be doing some of the dirty work for them that a big corporation can't really, you know, cop to publicly. And the other thing is it means they make money in good times and bad for ranchers. So when ranchers are doing great, prices are good for their animals, they're going to expand their production, and that means there's going to be a tendency for more cattle for you to buy. And when ranchers are going bankrupt, they're going to flood the market with their cattle, and there's more cheap cattle for the food processor. So all of the uncertainty and risk gets put onto these kind of primary producers, and then the processors can kind of even it out in a way that's more friendly to investment capital. And in my story, when I talk about the failure of corporate ranching in America, when they try to do big-scale corporate ranching in the 1880s, what I look at is why that unpredictability doesn't mesh well with big business. And so that's why big business moves into processing. Mm-hmm. So a big part of processing, right, other than the machinery and the technology, is the labor that's involved in it. And so you say on page 180, the packing house is a masterpiece of technological and organizational achievement, but that was not enough to slaughter millions of cattle annually. Packing plants needed cheap, reliable, and desperate labor. So what are some of the factors that make for an expendable, easily replaced, and nearly invisible workforce? Well, there's a few. And, and one of the things I wanted to suggest is it's not simply a story of technology. So one of the things that makes this expendable workforce or expendable from the capitalist perspective and, and profitable is the division of labor and the, the assembly line or disassembly line in the case of a slaughterhouse. Right. So everybody is doing one task in kind of somewhat synchronized. And so once the task is simplified, people can be trained more quickly. Once everybody's working in unison, you can pay one of those workers twice as much to go twice as fast, and everybody down the chain has to go just as fast. And so it kind of there's a way to coerce more out of your workers just by the organization of the slaughterhouse. But that's not just a story of technology, because as I, as I trace in the 1880s, workers worked to unionize. And if they could have a union, they could maybe have some strength against their employers who are trying to always work them as hard as they can. But, of course, um, state power in the 19th century ultimately sides with the slaughterhouse owners, with the meat packers, and so they can't really unionize. And so once state power sides with management and management uses this kind of like disassembly line model, then workers are just maximally exploited. And so that's the kind of story I tell. In the 20th century, you do get uh, unionization within meatpacking in the United States. However, one of the sad parts I trace is by then the work is so intense and the kind of baseline assumption for what you do as a worker is, is so uh, brutal that it really is a, is a lost opportunity that could have been changed much earlier. There is this process of de-skilling the work that made it so that the labor force is very easily replaced. Um, but I think also the identity of the labor force also played into that. Ah, uh, Yes. That is a real, that's a really important point, and I think there are some parallels between today and the past. 
So the other thing is, is one of the ways slaughtering takes off in Chicago in the 19th century is there's a large workforce that is not well integrated into the surrounding country and doesn't have a lot of power. They're mostly recent immigrants from Eastern Europe. And to some extent during strikes, African-American workers recently moved to Chicago from, say, the South. And so it's kinds of people who don't have as much political power as they could within the surrounding political system who are more able to be exploited. And of course we see that today. So nowadays, many employees in slaughter facilities and processing facilities are also recent immigrants, often undocumented people from Latin America. Um, and so it, it's, it's sort of the same. There's this kind of workforce that has to operate in the shadows, allowing them to be exploited more. And that has not changed. It's just the location they come from has changed. Mm-hmm. And so it seems for these firms to maximize their profit, it's actually really critical to have marginalized groups as the majority of their workforce so that they can continue to exploit them. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, it, it, there's some indication of that. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, maybe if they treated the workers better, productivity would remain just as high. But certainly the forces encourage this kind of exploitation and this kinds of uh, marginalizing of the populations that work there. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily just their productivity, but just their, their bargaining power. Right. Making it so they have limited bargaining power. That's very important. Yeah. You know, when people write about these slaughterhouses, there's either a breathless tone of how amazing these business innovators are. And then there's the the fantastic labor history literature, which looks at the exploitation. And I tried to tell a story that talks about how the innovation side is inseparable from the exploitation, because I see the innovation as the ability to work your workers harder. It's not magic, the productivity gain. Right. So this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but I just thought it was really interesting when you say about how we think of the modern-day food production system as really being transformed by railroads and refrigeration. But this is only a part of the story and doesn't speak to the outcome of the many social and political struggles. And that's what's really shaped, I think, the labor landscape and the modern-day food production system. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's that's kind of the thing I was trying to figure out in the book is – that there's a very simple story of technology here. The story, like you said, of railroads and refrigeration. And there's a story, a simple story of technology in the 20th and 21st centuries, right? About artificial fertilizer, about crop science, et cetera. Um, but that's only, you know, 60% of the story. There's a very human story. There's human struggles. There's human assumptions about how these things work. And the technology piece of the story is often told as the entirety, that that's all we need to think about. And that way of telling the story justifies a lot of the human exploitation, right? So all of a sudden, if railroads and refrigeration explain something, the meat packers in Chicago don't have to answer for the violence in their slaughterhouses or the exploitation of their workers, right? If artificial fertilizer explains things, nobody has to justify decisions around deforestation, et cetera. And so by putting the human struggle back in and human debates about what the system should look like, I'm hoping to kind of undo some of those overly technologically focused stories. So you talk a lot about the democratization of beef. Can you explain just what that means? Yeah, I've kind of gone back and forth on on the term, actually. The idea of democratization of beef is that it's widely available. But the idea is not that it means the same thing to everyone. So, again, in the late 19th century, cheap, reasonably high-quality beef came into reach of the majority, the vast majority of Americans. Um, And what that meant is elite Americans had anxiety about poor Americans being afforded food that only richer people could have once. And so they came up with new ways to differentiate what they ate. They came up with fancier restaurants. 
they worried about the cut of the meat. So they asked, why did poorer people expect the porterhouse steak when they could have the cheaper round steak? And so it wasn't that it made everything the same, but everybody being able to access beef kind of sparked all sorts of new debates about what food meant to Americans and how they differentiate themselves with their food. And kind of that's what I'm trying to get at with this idea of the democratization of beef. The other thing, though, to just add is that once beef becomes sort of universally available in the United States, it becomes an important marker of identity, of who we are as Americans. It becomes a metric for immigrants to highlight their success in America. It becomes a metric for workers to show how powerful they are. And it becomes a source, like I said, of concern for richer Americans who begin to study diets of the working class and poor. And that's a tradition that in many troubling ways continues to today. And it's so interesting to me um, how this happened in America, but it's also happening elsewhere. So just thinking about how with globalization, how beef really flooded like South Korea and yeah. just like destroyed the market there and the livelihood of farmers there and then became as well like a status symbol like, oh, now we can all afford to eat beef. Yeah, and I think about this too because, you know, Americans eating beef today, this could change, um, but currently you're not going to get Brazilian beef and you're not going to get beef from the Amazon. But of course, nevertheless, even if you're consuming beef and high quality beef, there still is this element that you're contributing to this idea that to eat beef is to be successful, that beef is at the center of the diet. And so that's now part of a global kind of set of assumptions about what we eat. And so I don't know how we can get out of that. I haven't answered that, but I feel like we all end up participating in that. Mm -hmm. And do you know how we got there? <laughs> like how, how we got to this point? Well, as far as, the, as, far as wanting beef, um, I mean, I, I hope this is the book is a contribution to understanding it. It's hard to know because in some ways what beef means to people didn't actually change that much in my story. Before everyone could have cheap quality beef all the time, they actually wanted beef. The transformation was that a special occasion food, a food they might have only had on religious holidays or special occasions, became an all-the-time food. So I think the associations between beef and power and success have a very long story, uh, particularly among the populations of people who made up the majority of American immigration in the 19th century. And then with the success of the United States, I think that kind of helps create this idea that success and wealth is connected to beef. Um, and that's why I think about not just reworking how we produce beef in the United States, but thinking about the place of beef on our plate and maybe making it more a, a side kind of complement than the main attraction. As far as how you do that, you know, I, I don't know. Someone smarter than me is going to have to think about that. <laughs> so I never really thought about this much before, but just how American it is to eat beef. Um, I remember that campaign from, I think it was like the early 90s of beef, it's what's for dinner, and like really sticks out in my head. And you wrote this article this year, I believe, about beef and the Green New Deal. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, the article was trying to think about a few things. So, you know, I was just saying, and we were just talking about how beef is this important product for all Americans. You know, it becomes a marker of American identity. But what I find interesting in the past few years is that beef has kind of been drawn into the culture war a bit. So the, in, in the Green New Deal, there is some discussion in some of the sporting documents about beef production contributing to greenhouse gas emissions changing the place of, of, of cattle ranch and beef production. And critics of the Green New Deal really latched on to this to say, you know, liberals are coming for your hamburgers and to, to, as a way to really smear the Green New Deal. 
And what I found fascinating about that and some of the politics around the Green New Deal is this follows a kind of long-running playbook uh, in American business, which is they take a criticism of production, so the Green New Deal is critical of how we produce beef, and they turn it into an attack on consumption, the thing consumers like. The Green New Deal is raising questions about ranching, and the people opposed to it are going to say they're coming for your hamburgers. And similarly, in the 19th century, when Philip Danforth Armour, the meatpacker, was facing criticism about bankrupting butchers, exploiting workers and ranchers, etc., he said, this is what I have to do to give the common laborer the meat they want. And so what I see is beef being used as part of a question of political identity now as a way of attacking things like the Green New Deal. And so that's what I try to trace in the article a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, it's just so interesting how we take something that's a problem of production and turn it into, like, again, individual like consumption matter when that's really not the problem at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great strategy of misdirection. I mean, if that's what you're trying to achieve, right? And it's, um, it's very discouraging at times. Yeah, or like when people try to regulate other industries and they try to say it's about, like, someone trying to take away your own personal choice. It's like a weird bait and switch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a choice is, is really important to this. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms, but I think it, it's, it's not just that, like, individual choice can't be the entirety of the solution or that we only have limited control over our choices because our tastes are shaped by who we are, but yet choice as a kind of value is so important to people. And the tension between choice as a value and the reality that many of our tastes are, are, are not always a conscious choice really creates a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. I mean, choice as an American value is connected to food, but also all sorts of things. I mean, even the healthcare debate. And that was the weird thing about when I was writing about the history of beef is like everywhere I looked, it seemed to be part of some bigger conversation about what it means to be American, um, in part because it's so valued in the West, but also this question of choice and just the scale. And that's what made it kind of cool is I think it informs all these things. There are obviously many interesting threads throughout your book, and I was particularly interested in one, just how narratives and stories craft or shape our choices. But another thing that really stood out to me was, again, the role of technology and then also the limits of consumerism politics. And I'm thinking about this especially now, like in this day and age, I feel like we as a society really rely heavily on technology to save us and also our individual consumerism to make change. So, for example, like if we all eat lab-grown meat, we can stop climate change. But in your book, you show how one relying on technology and only really telling that story ignores the human and political struggle, and also that individual consumerism has its limits. So what are some of the ways that you think that we can deconstruct systems and try to make change in our food system and beyond? No, that's a hard question. I mean, I, I wrote a history that hoping that people who think about that full time could maybe use it. Um, I mean, like I said, I think, I mean, I think these solutions are very, are, are not easy. I mean, I, I, I raised this before, but because price is the organizing principle, any, any kind of amelioration is going to increase the cost of food. And so I think an environmental and social justice agenda around food has to be paired with a question of economic justice making better food more available and accessible for people. Now, that obviously isn't an answer because that's hard to do. The encouraging thing is it does mean that any productive answer has the possibility for big change to be very powerful. But I think we need to take a step back and be thinking very big about this. I think the other thing I'll say is, while I think the solution to these things are often structural, 
write new kinds of regulation on the on the centralization of processing, environmental protections and rules, labor standards. While those are structural, the thing that gets people excited is this question of like individual action and consumer choice. And I think we need to figure out how to scale individual enthusiasm around questions of choice to structural solutions. So you don't eat, you know, fewer hamburgers each week or eat vegetarian before five just for yourself, but you you do something like that to build a political movement to get structural change. And so I think thinking about how to scale from individual to collective is where the answer is. I just don't know. How? Hopefully hopefully looking at the history is helpful for some people thinking about this, though. I think it's really important. Yeah, and I think also looking at the history helps us to realize there is no, right, like silver bullet. It takes many different sorts of actions, and I think from different places, to create this sort of long-lasting change that we want to see. Yeah, and I mean, on that point, um, I think while I'm, I'm trying to show there's, there's no sil silver bullet as far as the solution, I tried to pair that with maybe a more comforting thought also, which is it's not inevitable. What we have now is not the question of technology, it's the question of politics. And so while I show how hard it would be to change, it is possible. And I found that at least took some comfort in that when I finished the book. You can find this and other episodes of Real Food Reads on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Stitcher. Check it out and leave us a review. Thank you for joining us as we dive into some of the most interesting topics in the food system today.